So we're in Daniel 11. As we make our way through, we'll pick up in verse 25, and that will bring about the kind of conclusion of Daniel and the conclusion of this three-chapter section, chapter 10, chapter 11, chapter 12, all encompassing Daniel's last vision. Daniel, taken to Babylon from Israel as a teenager, has spent his life in Babylon, gained some notoriety there, had some prominence governmentally there, became known for his ability to connect with God, to interpret dreams. He was a man of prayer, all those things we've read. In these last three chapters, Daniel is just emotionally challenged by this vision that he's had. He's wondering, he's worried about what's the future of the Jewish people. So he has this vision and this angel comes to explain this vision. Chapter 10 is the introduction. Chapter 11 is the detailed vision itself. And then chapter 12 will give us the conclusion. And the prophecy in chapter 11 involves incredible detail, most detailed prophecy in the whole of the Bible. But beginning with Daniel, going on to the time of Jesus and even past then, even to things that are still future for us, the past or what was present time for Daniel the Persian Empire, the beginnings of the Greek Empire with Alexander the Great. Those things, we don't get much detail here. We've seen them pictured in other visions, but in this vision, not much detail about those. Sort of skimmed over, and then we see Alexander the Great's kingdom divided into his four generals, and we don't get much detail about two of them kind of disappear, and the focus is on these two generals, the North and the South, the Syrian dynasty and the Egyptian dynasty, the Seleucids in the north, and the Ptolemies in the south. And there's the highlight, and some have said, and we know the reason they're highlighted is because Syria on the top is like a hammer, and Egypt on the bottom is like an anvil, and Israel just gets beat up in between these two warring dominant powers. So we've been through that history, watched painstakingly, went through the names and the battles and the history, all confirming the reality of the prophecy that God had shared to Daniel. These things, God said them, and then we can look back. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You can look back in history and say, oh, here's how it happened. Now today, as we start to focus down a little bit more, we'll go from these two kingdoms, north and south, and we'll be focusing mostly on one king who's in charge of leading the northern kingdom. So it's a Syrian king. We introduced ourselves to him last week. His name was Antiochus epiphanies. You've ever had an epiphany? Something becomes known, is revealed. Antiochus epiphanies is his name. So there's fewer people, fewer names, but more detail revolving around Antiochus epiphanies. Why is he so important to God? Well, you'll see as we go through that he becomes for us a picture of the future ruler that he typifies, the one we know as Antichrist. So all that is standing before us. Verse 21 told us that this Antiochus Epiphanes, he is coming on the scene as a vile. Anybody remember his nickname? Antiochus Epimenes, which means the madman. And you'll see this guy is an absolute lunatic in his attempt to destroy the Jews. So that's where we are. We pick up in verse 25 talking about this northern ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse 25 says, And he shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. 
the Ptolemaic king, with a great army. And the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army. So we've got a great army against a very great army. But he, the king of the south, shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. So the discussion here, it's not obvious, but it's about betrayal. Now remember, all these things seem to be happening according to the plans and the imaginations of people, but yet behind the scenes, we'll see as God is accomplishing his purposes through these lives on planet earth. So this betrayal happens in verse 26. We've got this big northern army of Antiochus against a bigger southern army of Ptolemy. In most situations, as opposed to an underdog situation, who would you typically root for? The stronger, bigger army or the weaker army? Who's typically going to win? Typically, the bigger army would win. So we would expect the southern army to win, but they didn't. Instead, they lose. Why? Not because Antiochus's army was better or bigger or it wasn't a military thing. It happened because of betrayal. Did you see that at the end of verse 26? Those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. Who eats of a king's delicacies? Not the average person, only his closest advisors and counselors. His generals and his leaders will eat with him. So Ptolemy gets sold out. This is a historical fact. He gets sold out or betrayed by his close advisors into the hands of Antiochus. And therefore, the rest of the verse says, his, Ptolemy's army, should be swept away and many shall fall down slain. So the result of this betrayal, the result of this loss, is that Ptolemy in the south becomes just a puppet king for Antiochus. Antiochus is really calling the shots. He really has his imagination set on dominating Egypt too. So the response of the Egyptians in the south is now that their king is a puppet king for this guy in the north, the Syrian king, they say, you know what, we want a different king. So they choose for themselves a relative of this Ptolemaic king, and his name is Ptolemy Fiscon. So Ptolemy VIII Fiscon is his nickname. Do you know what Fiscon means? It means fatty. That's what it means. So he becomes fatty. So we've got puppet and fatty. Is that easier to remember? All right, in the South, we've got now two Ptolemies, puppet and fatty, both ruling, both competing for the rule over that place. Now, verse 27 says, both these kings' hearts, not the two Ptolemies, Antiochus and Puppet, both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. We get a little insight into their true motivation because they're going to come around the table, it says, and they shall speak lies at the same table. So, Meanwhile, there's evil in their hearts. Each of them wants to dominate the other. Each of them wants to crush the other. But they end up around the same table. And what are they doing at the table? Are they speaking truth to each other? Are they telling each other all that they really plan to do? They're lying to each other. They're lying through their teeth about, oh, we can do this and we can form a contractual relationship. We can have an alliance. Baloney. That doesn't sound like politics, does it? Telling lies at the same table and bent on evil. Sounds all too familiar. Will their agreement actually bring peace 
to their region and to the Jewish people? No, it's not going to work. Why not? Well, not just because of their desire to do evil and their speaking lies. That certainly doesn't help. But it's not going to work because it's not the right time. See, God has a calendar. God has a time clock. Did you see that? It says, it shall not prosper. It's not going to work. Why? For the end will still be at the appointed time. God says, I have chosen a time for the end, the end of Gentile rule, the end of indignation against God's people, the bringing in of the kingdom of Jesus. There's a time for that. And now's not the time. So he's telling Daniel this. Now, I don't know about you, but how full is your schedule book? Let's be honest for a minute. How full is your schedule? Anybody have like, my schedule book is way too crowded. Now, COVID has helped that a little bit, hasn't it? I don't know about you, but I used to have a calendar book. I used to actually write it on paper, but now I have a smartphone because evidently I lost my memory completely. And if I don't write it down, it doesn't exist. I have to write it down. Have you ever missed an appointment? Uh-huh. Oh, I hate when I do that. If I forget it or I put it on the wrong date or I just really feel bad when I miss an appointment with somebody, I feel irresponsible when I do that. And how about, has anybody ever missed an appointment they scheduled with you? Yeah, or they've changed the appointment and that really throws you off. I mean, our lives revolve around appointments and God's existence also revolves around appointments. God makes appointments for life and situations on planet earth. And that's what Daniel is being told here. There's an appointed time. An appointment is something that comes to when two people meet at a certain time, at a certain place, that's called an appointment. There's a point in time and a point on a map that something converges and that's an appointment. And I found out as I thought this through that the Bible is filled with what we would call divine appointments. Have you ever experienced what you maybe didn't realize at the time, but later realized, or maybe you did know this was a divine appointment. You've got to take a word out of your language. You've got to take a word out of your vocabulary. It's the word coincidence. When you begin to recognize that God is sovereign and God is powerful and God is omniscient, you don't say it was a coincidence. You say it was a God incidence. It was a divine appointment. And sometimes for us, they involve inconvenience. They involve experiencing a delay, a change of plans, a redirection, a recalculation, and someone comes across our paths or something happens, you go, that was a divine appointment. Through the Bible, Jesus meets a woman who just thinks she's getting water at a well. And that day her life changes. She has a divine appointment. Sometimes divine appointments are between people and God. But then other times they're between people on earth, but God orchestrates it. Genesis 24, Abraham's servant goes to find a wife for his son, Isaac. I don't know if you know the story. He sends him out, go back to my country, find a wife for my son. And he goes looking, doesn't know really who he's looking for. He knows that she's got to be a relative of Abraham's or from his family. So he says, I'll tell you what, God, maybe I'll know it's her because she'll offer to water my camels. And that's how he knows. She's going to be a servant. And so he goes and the first girl he sees, he stops by this place and he sees this girl come out and she offers to water the camels the first person. And it turns out he meets her and she's a relative of Abraham. And the servant says, ah, 
this is wonderful. Goes back to her house, meets her family. And he tells the story and he says, as I was on the way, the Lord led me. And that's a beautiful verse that holds intention. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. This guy was just on his way, looking for a wife for Abraham's son, and God orchestrated it that he would meet this girl named Rebecca, and that would be the bride's son. So as he was on the way, the Lord led him. Divine appointment. I mean, on and on. Simon from Cyrene. Jesus is carrying his cross. He's just there. Hey, what's going on, everybody? There's this guy being paraded down the streets of Jerusalem, and the Romans say, hey, you, get over here and carry this cross. Simon the Cyrene just pulled into service by the Romans. Wasn't something he planned on doing that day. It was divine appointment. And on and on and on and on you could go. Our lives are filled with divine appointment. One more example. Hebrews 9 says it's appointed for a man once to die and then the judgment. So we have an appointment with a day where my spirit will leave my body, my earthly body. We call it death. Death is separation, separation of the spirit from the body. Psalm 139, all the days are written in a book before any one of them is lived. There's an appointment. God knows it. God knows the day that I cease to exist on planet earth. No matter how many smoothies I smooth, how much green stuff I eat, I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but I'm saying that the day is set. Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. And God could give Daniel his 70 weeks prophecy and tell him exactly to the day when the Messiah would be cut off. We are going about our lives, but there's a consciousness God is directing me. I'm planning my ways, but in the midst of that, I look back. Romans 8.28 is one of my absolute favorite Bible verses. Do you know what that is, Romans 8.28? It's a memory verse. For God works all things together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. I mean, I live on that verse. I used to hate the idea of failure. I was so afraid to fail. And then I read Romans 8, 28, and I realized, ha, huh, no such thing as failure anymore. Because even what I would deem a failure, God is using it and working together with other circumstances for good to accomplish his purposes through my life. And all of a sudden, the anxiety starts to fall away. And the peace starts to flood into our hearts when we realize that this is true. These guys can't prosper because their appointment is for the end, not now, a future time. Verse 28 says, while returning to his land, Antiochus heading back north, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. So as he heads back north, he passes through Jerusalem and decides to do a little damage there to raise some money or steal some money from the Jewish temple to fund his increasing army so he can conquer Egypt. That's his plan. So in his heart, in the heart of this Antiochus guy, is growing anti-Semitism, growing desire to use and abuse the Jews for his own purposes. And he uses this high priest puppet named Menelaus, remember him, to do it and to help with that. Verse 29, we see it again, at the appointed time. We say, oh, what a coincidence. But God says, oh, that's the time I appointed for it. At the appointed time, not random, not coincidence, not chance. At the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. 
two years later, Antiochus heads back toward Egypt. But it's different this time. It shall not be like the former or the latter, the former where they were working on sitting around a table and lying to each other. What's going to make it different? Verse 30 tells us, for ships from Cyprus shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved. You can write broken or dejected and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. The background of the story, again, two years later, Antiochus heads back to war against Egypt. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Mr. Fatty, remember Mr. Fatty? Mr. Fatty decided he was going to organize an overthrow of Mr. Puppet. We'll call him King Fatty and King Puppet. So King Fatty wants to overthrow King Puppet, so King Puppet runs to Rome. Because of King Puppet's parents, he's got an alliance with Rome. So he says, hey, Rome, mean Mr. King of the North is coming against us and we need help. So Rome says, well, okay, we have an alliance with you. We get resources from you. We want to protect that. So Rome sends a little contingency, nothing fancy, nothing major, a little representative army of the Roman power and influence. And the guy that's leading this is not even a general, not even a military guy. You know who he is? He's a senator. He's probably got clean fingernails. He's not done a day of work in his life. He's the upper echelon in Roman culture, and he's distinguished. He's probably overweight as well because they were all eating all the time, and they were the haves. So he shows up with a command of a little army and a little navy. His name is Papilius Linnaeus, just in case you were wondering. And this is where we get our famous story. If you've ever had to draw a line in the sand, you know what that is? If you've ever had to tell someone, that's it. I'm drawing a line in the sand right here. No more. This incident, historically, is where that saying proverbially comes from. The issue is, is that as Papilius shows up and he meets Antiochus, he says, hey, Antiochus, I'm here representing all the power of Rome, and you better think twice about your decision to attack Egypt. So we need to know, are you going to attack Egypt or not? Rome needs to know. We need to know if we need to prepare for battle. And Antiochus is stalling. He says, give me some time to think about it. He says, okay, I'll give you time to think about it. And this little guy dressed in his toga, wimpy little guy, and he takes his little stick, not a sword, and he draws a line, a circle, all the way around where Antiochus is standing. And he says, now, you better have an answer before you step out of that circle. And if you step out of that circle without giving me a clear answer, then we will take that as an act of war against Rome. And Antiochus knew what that meant. All the power of Rome was represented by that senator. And he drew a line in the sand and said, you better make your decision before you step over that line. Pretty cool, huh? If you attack Egypt, you will also be attacking Rome. So Antiochus decides not to push his luck. He knows he can't face Rome. So he heads back north, humiliated, utterly humiliated in front of his army. Now, a guy with pride like that does not respond well to public humiliation. So you see what he does. He's broken. He's dejected. At the end of verse 30, he returns in rage. Not just a little upset, not just a little wounded pride. He is in a fit of rage. And who's he going to take it out on? The Jews. They call this displaced aggression. This happens when you have a bad day at the office and you come home and you kick the dog, or you're ornery to your kids. It doesn't have anything to do with your kids or your spouse. 
It was something somebody said to you at work, something your boss did, just ticked you off, made you mad. But you know you can't take it out on him because you'd lose your job or her. So you go home and you take it out on people that are weaker than you. And that's what Antiochus does. He's again, just simply keeping appointments that he didn't realize he had. This unique convergence brings about this aggression against the Jews. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. So he's increasing and producing and perpetuating an anti-Jewish sentiment. Now remember, at this time, there's been a really big push to make the Jews more like the Greeks. Greek culture is in, that's relevant, that's popular, that's where the world is going, and hey, we need to get the Jews up to speed with Greek culture. Yeah, no mind that it's idolatrous and immoral. This is where everybody's going. So there were people, leaders in the nation, that really agreed with making and adopting and going that way toward Greek culture. And the seedbed of that here, do you know what they become in the New Testament? Do you know what we know them as? The Sadducees, who are the aristocrats, who are Hellenized, who are still living, even at the time of Jesus, in Greek sort of culture. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels or spirits or all that stuff. That's the Sadducees. But there was another group, and you can imagine who they were. They were the more conservative. They were the ones that were against Syria having any control over the temple. These were the purists, the conservatives, and Jesus called them the Pharisees. Pharisees started out in the right place, really wanting to keep the temple pure. They just got off track. Their Phariseeism became their idol. So political favoritism toward those that are willing to adopt Greek culture, and there's a lot of persecution, there's a lot of loss happening. If you don't go that direction, if you don't follow Antiochus, it's going to cost you. Verse 31 says, and forces shall be mustered by him. There's an army, the Syrian army is going to surround the temple and keep people from going in. They shall defile the sanctuary fortress, and they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. This is just a snippet of all of the bloodshed and the destruction that Antiochus carried out. This is why they call him the madman. He robs their temple treasury. He burns their city. He burns their holy books. He changes God's name to Zeus Olympus, puts a statue of Zeus in the holy temple, makes it illegal to go to worship on the holy days, no circumcision, none of these things that would be connected to Judaism. He is trying to utterly destroy Jews and all of Jewish identity. That's his goal. One of the greatest miracles on planet earth, one of the greatest proofs for the existence of God is the perpetuation of the Jewish people. Six million Jews killed during the Holocaust and they still dominate our world in science and technology and agriculture. I mean, the Jews are amazing people. Amazing people. The miracles of the Six-Day War, I mean, despite what they've been through, there still are Jewish people. Other dynasties, other empires come and go. But the Jewish people have just continued on. He forces the Jews to sacrifice pigs, an unclean animal, on their altar. So all this is happening. And the abomination that leads to desolation here seems to be Antiochus' placement of the statue of Zeus in the temple. 
But this can't be the total fulfillment. Why? Because Jesus is going to refer to the same thing spoken of by the prophet Daniel, the abomination of desolation referred to in Daniel's 70-week prophecy in chapter 9, referred to here. Jesus is going to say, when you see it in Matthew 24. So there's a greater fulfillment. There's a lesser fulfillment in Antiochus. There's a greater fulfillment in the Antichrist. Prophecy can be challenging because we're focused in on Antiochus, but Antiochus is going to fade off the scene and Antichrist is going to fade in. And you'll watch it happen over the next few verses here. The Antichrist is going to put a statue of himself in the temple and demand to be worshipped himself as God. And Jesus mentions this 200 years after Antiochus. Verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Listen carefully, church. There are people that can be corrupted by smooth talk. And then there are people that know their God. You can sit in church, you can go through the motions and not know God. And it makes you very vulnerable to being led astray, deceived by lies. There's a cost to following Christ. There's a lot of people that are going to cut and run. Because when you know the truth, if you sit in math class and you're up there doing the two plus two math problem, and the teacher says, I want you to tell everybody that two plus two is five. I can't say that. It's not true. Unless you are bent on lying. I can't, with a straight face, look you in the eye and tell you two plus two is five. There's conviction. I can't, with a straight face, look at you and say, I do not believe Jesus is Christ. I do not believe in the living God. I can't do it. It's going to be tempting at a time if my kids are in danger, if my family's in danger, if I got to take the number of the B666 and I can't buy and sell groceries, we can't get toilet paper. What now? Give me the mark, man. I need toilet paper. So we're in a day when people are saying, ah, I'll listen to Bible studies, but I don't really need to be involved with church fellowship. Dangerous. There's going to be a day when much more so than now, we need each other. The community of the people of God is absolutely essential to survive whatever's coming down the pike for this world. I really wholeheartedly believe that. It's not just about getting together for some entertainment. It's about encouraging one another in our walk with the Lord. It's about providing for one another's needs. If your family is getting persecuted, then my family can help you. In history, there are times like Esther, Queen Esther realized, I was raised up for such a time as this. We may go through in our lifetime a very unique situation where we're going to be called on to do things that we never would have thought we would have had to do. Think about living during the Holocaust, hiding Jews in your house, facing death for doing the right thing. This is what they had to face. Flattery, yeah, man, smooth talk, justifications, follow Antichrist, follow Antiochus. But the people who know their God shall be strong. That verse has always encouraged me. The people that know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Verse 33, and those of the people who understand, synonymous with the people of God, the people who know their God, and those of the people who understand, literally are walking circumspectly, shall instruct many. Yet, for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Knowing or understanding the times that they lived in, 
there will be a desire to instruct other people about the truth. There will be those that want to exchange the truth, Romans chapter 1, to exchange the truth of God for the lie. There is no God. And those that know the truth are going to have a desire to instruct many. I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer during the Holocaust, how the whole church had been corrupted by Hitler and his Third Reich, and it become destroyed, corrupted. So he had to start a parallel church movement. They called it the Confessing Church. They had their own seminaries. They had their own instruction, all sticking to the Bible. So there's a time to go, you know, we're going to hold on to the truth. That's what Daniel is learning. Before it gets better, it gets worse. And it may be that for us. Before it gets better, it gets worse. Thousands are martyred under Antiochus, but there's also a lot of heroic actions. Now, when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. So as all this persecution is going on, what begins then is called the Maccabean Revolt. Anybody grow up Catholic? Does the Catholic Bible, has got all these other books in it, the apocryphal books. I believe the books of First and Second Maccabees are in the Catholic Bible. These are not recognized as Scripture. They're never quoted by the New Testament authors. They weren't accepted as Scripture by the early church. They're great and accurate history, but they're just not considered holy Scripture because they weren't written by a prophetic writer. So they describe this Maccabean revolt, 167, led by a high priest named Mattathias and his five sons. One of them, his name is Judas the Hammer Maccabeus. This was the Maccabean family that starts this revolt. He refused to sacrifice a pig or sacrifice to an idol, and he killed the guard, and that led this big revolt, which helped the persecution at this time. So through guerrilla warfare, they battled the Syrian army and actually won. They won back the temple. They cleaned it out. They rededicated it. This is where the story of Hanukkah comes from. You're learning all kinds of useful stuff this morning, aren't you? So Hanukkah gets its roots in the Maccabean revolt and the rededication of the temple. The oil that should have lasted one day lasts eight days. That's why the menorah has eight candlesticks rather than the seven normally found in a Jewish menorah. So ultimately, this Hasmonean dynasty and Antiochus ends up dying later on down the road. But this is 167. They get a little help, but many shall join them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them. We've always said the testimony of the church is strengthened by the blood of the martyrs. The encouragement is not so much what we live for, but what people are willing to die for. That's when you really know what you're passionate about. I mentioned a woman that we support. She's a missionary who used to live in China. Now she lives in the States. She got saved as a result of the testimonies that came out of the Chinese Revolution from meeting a woman who spent 20 years in prison in China. And when she saw that this woman was willing to die for this God of the Bible, she said, I probably should know about that God. If you're willing to die for him, I should know about him. So there's a refining that happens, a purifying I don't know if you would agree with me in this, and as much as I hate to admit it, I think the church might really benefit from a purifying time. As difficult as that is to say, as difficult as it would be to live, part of the complacency in the American church is because we've got it too good. In being so blessed, we've really relaxed about our desire to get the word out, about the issues of holiness and so many things. Eh, we're complacent. There's no challenge. So it may be what's happening here. It may be something that's coming, purification. 
So there's a future time until the time of the end because it is still for the appointed time. God is not changing his timetable. And now verse 36 begins to reveal, we've made this switch over to Antichrist from Antiochus. How do you know? Because he just said it's going to be until a certain time, until the time of the end, the end of Gentile rule, the end of God's wrath, the beginning of the age of Christ. So the end of the church age and all of that, that's the appointed time. Now, up until now, we've had 35 verses with 135 prophetic statements precisely fulfilled. Did you know that? 135 prophetic statements, perfectly, historically, hindsight is 2020. We can see exactly how they were fulfilled in 35 verses. But starting in verse 36, most scholars agree, almost all, uniformly say something changes, and now all of a sudden things stop fitting right. We're looking into the future now. So from now to the end of the Bible study, there'll be much more speculation and possibility rather than being dogmatic. Can't say for sure. Why? Because we're looking into the future and we don't know how it's going to work out. Then the king, the king at that time, at the time of the end, the Antichrist, shall do according to his own will. He will be self-willed. No one is going to tell me what to do. And there's that spirit of Antichrist, I think, even now in American culture, isn't there? That spirit of independent autonomy. No one is going to tell me what to do. That's the American way, man. No one's going to tell me who I can marry, what I can do. It's my body. I'll do what I want with the life that is in it. I decide what's right for me. No one else. I am God. This is the spirit of Antichrist. If you look back at Isaiah, Ezekiel, the prophecies about Satan, he said, I will be like the Most High. I will exalt myself. And we say, wow, the whole world really does lie under the sway, as John says in 1 John, of the wicked one. There is a satanic influence for those that don't have their heads screwed on tight. There is a spirit of Antichrist. There is a satanic spirit that the whole world lies in the sway of the wicked one. I am tasked with helping to put our six-month-old granddaughter down for nap time. So I've been doing a lot of rocking lately. That's because it's how I put her to sleep. I want to sway her. Why? What happens? Something in us goes, it feels good. I can't stay awake for nothing in the car. I'm out. But that's what Satan is doing. It's just a little rocking us back and forth. Don't ask any questions. Just go about your business. Follow the media. Follow the rhetoric. And just rocking back and forth. But for those of us who are walking circumspectly, who are not being drunk with wine and which is dissipation, but being filled with the Spirit, we're looking around. And we're seeing the time we live in. We're knowing these things are close. But the Antichrist, he shall exalt and magnify himself above every god, shall speak blasphemies against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the wrath or the indignation, the seven-year tribulation time, the time of God's wrath, has been accomplished. For what has been determined shall be done. When God makes an appointment, he keeps it. When God determines what he's going to do, when God determined that salvation would be by faith, that's what he did. God makes a determination. So no one can counsel God. No one can tell him, ah, there's a better way to do it. It's determined and it's going to be done. 
And these things don't fit neatly with Antiochus. Verse 37, he shall regard, interesting, neither the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall exalt himself above them all. He's an atheist, except when he looks in the mirror. He looks in the mirror. He says, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. You know the song. To know me is to love me. This is the narcissistic, incredible sense of pride that will be exhibited fully in Antichrist. He is fully atheist. He believes in no other gods. There's no one higher than him. He answers to nobody. And some believe that the Antichrist will be of Jewish lineage because it says here, he shall regard neither the God of his fathers. Doesn't that sound familiar? You would have to be monotheistic because it's not gods, it's God. And that would be a reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of his fathers, the ancient Jewish history. Now, he also has to be kind of from Europe because it's the revived Roman Empire. Rome didn't get conquered. Rome dissolved and became Europe. So it'll be likely, possibly, speculatively, a man with a Jewish heritage that comes out of Europe. Now, my family, I'm from a Jewish heritage from Poland, Eastern European Jewish heritage. My father's side of the family, my great uncle, his name was Adam, was a freedom fighter during the Holocaust. I don't know what became him. Every time I go to the Holocaust Museum, I look in the library where they have all the names of people that were killed, and I haven't found any of my family names yet, but I have that heritage. This Antichrist will have, possibly, have a Jewish heritage. Interestingly, he says also, he's not going to regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any other God. So this speaks of worship of gods. So the desire of women Some people say, well, the Antichrist will be homosexual because he's not going to have a desire for women. And you could make that argument. There's other speculations, but I don't think that's what's being said here. It doesn't fit the context. He's writing to Jews. This is Daniel, who's Jewish. Do you know what the desire of every Jewish woman would have been? To be pregnant and have a son. Do you know why a Jewish woman would want a son? Her hope would be that maybe she would be the one to give birth to the Messiah. So the desire of women would be the desire to give birth to the Messiah. So to not have regard for the God of his fathers, nor the object of the desire of women or the Messiah. So he's not going to have any regard for the God of his fathers, the living God, or for the Messiah, the Savior. Ah, who needs the Savior? I'm the Savior, he would say. He's going to want himself to be worshipped. He's going to exalt himself above them all. But in there, or literally his, it's singular, in their place, He shall honor a God of fortresses, interesting, literally a fortified place or a strong defense, and a God which his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. So looking into the future, we can only speculate. I have no idea. I can't tell you for certain what these things mean, but it seems that Antichrist will not just have a strong military, he will trust his strong military. Now, we know what the Bible says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen watch in vain. If you don't know God, you spend your life in anxiety trying to protect what you have. I'm not saying you shouldn't lock your doors and have a security system. But you know that people live in fear. 
People that don't know God, people that are gods to themselves, they live in huge amount of fear, more security, more locks, more anxiety. And they begin to trust their God is, in a sense, their fortresses. I'm going to insulate myself with my money, my bank account. I'm going to fill a wall around myself. I'm going to fortress myself in. I'm not going to let anybody in and no one get out, protecting everything I have, because that's where I trust. God says to me, Steve, let your guard down. Nothing can separate you from my love. Not principalities or powers, nothing in the spiritual realm of darkness and demons, not nakedness, not war, not peasants. Nothing can separate you. And I believe him. I believe him. So all of a sudden, anxiety starts to diminish. Do bad things happen? Yes, they do. What's the worst thing that can happen to you? You die, which is also the best thing that could happen to you. So how can you lose? I mean, yeah, I'm not looking forward to the process of dying. We have gods of our day. Our fortresses, our technology. I mean, we go sharing the downtown mall when we could before COVID, and you talk to people, what are people trusting in? They're trusting in science. Now, again, you've heard me say this. I'm not saying science is bad. I was a biology major. I love science. I love the study of science. But data needs interpretation. All data has to be interpreted. And when the scientific community goes past data compiling and begins to interpret data, they have crossed the line. And the scientific world is subject to confirmation bias and greed and covetousness. And technology can be made for a good thing. CRISPR is this program where you can edit genes which can be used for really good things like curing cancer, curing spina bifida, whatever you want. You just hack out the gene. It's so simple that a high school student with a computer and a microscope could do it. CRISPR is that easy to use. And that same tool that can be used for good in the wrong hands can also be used to create a worldwide virus that is as deadly as Ebola and as contagious as the common cold and has a gestation time of, eh, let's say, a couple of weeks. We would be dead before we even knew what hit us. One gene change in the H1N5, whatever it is, this deadly one they keep in the CDC. If someone gets a hold of that, it's over. We trust in our technologies. Verse 39, thus he shall act against the strongest fortresses with a foreign god. No idea what that means which he shall acknowledge and advance its glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and divide or distribute the land for gain. Distribute the lands of the earth, the one world empire, distribute them to leaders, or distribute the land of Israel. The land, maybe meaning Israel, Jew, Palestinian, peace treaty in the Middle East. That could be the building of a temple. Verse 40, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. The Antichrist is connected to Western rule. Matter of fact, the Muslims think that we are a beast. We are an immoral beast. That's why they want to exact jihad against the West, because they look at us and they say, man, we are a plague on earth because of our immorality. The king of the South shall attack him, this Antichrist, and the king of the North. So now North and South are against the Antichrist. We've got in the South, we've got Africa, especially North Africa, largely Muslim. In the North, you've got Turkey, Syria, 99.8% Muslim. Is there a Muslim war here with Antichrist? Remember, Antichrist is going to be a friend to the Jew, going to be favorable to the Jew at first for three and a half years. 
And then after that, he will be a man of war, claiming to be God and wanting to be worshipped, setting up a statue of himself in the temple that he helped them build. The king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen with many ships, and he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. He shall also enter the glorious land, that's Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand, Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, that's Jordan, modern-day Jordan. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasuries of gold and silver, and over all the precious things of Egypt, also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. Therefore, he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate. Possibly a reference to Armageddon. Possibly a reference to Revelation 9.16. This enormous army coming from the east. China can field a two million man army at this point, I believe. Incredible. A meeting there in the valley of Megiddo, or in the Jezreel Valley, the battle of Armageddon. Possibly references to those things. Verse 45, and he, Antichrist, shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain there in Israel. Yet he shall come to his end and no one will help him. So it's appointed for him destruction. He will not have overall success because we know our God wins. Not without cost to followers. It's important to count the cost. You know, what do you do with this? What's the application for you? We've talked about a lot of different subjects, and I know Daniel's been a challenging study. But these things God is telling you in advance so you're ready. The Bible tells us to be ready. Any day now, the rapture could happen the seven-year tribulation begins. Once judgment starts, it happens quickly. And if you don't want God now, there'll be people in the tribulation, no matter how bad it gets, they're still going to be, they're going to be wishing they were dead and still renouncing God. I don't know what it takes. Well, I do know what it takes. It takes humility. It takes honesty. It takes a veil being lifted off your eyes and recognizing, I am not God. There is a much much bigger picture to life on planet Earth. We are not here by accident. We didn't arrive on a comet. We weren't brought here by aliens. We were created by the living God to be in a loving relationship with him through his son for all eternity. That's the bigger story. Everything else on earth is just fluff. I hope you're on the right side of history, both now and eternally. Amen? Amen.